Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. My guest today is the TV and comics writer, Brian Hill. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So, first of all, for listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, just tell us briefly who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, Well, I'm Brian Hill. Let's see. I am a screenwriter, television writer, comic author. Uh, Currently, I'm writing Batman and the Outsiders for DC Comics. Uh, Angel, the uh, reboot of the Joss Whedon television series for Boom Studios and television. I am a writer on the show Titans, which is available on the DC streaming service in the U.S. and Netflix internationally. And uh, I've got a, I got a movie that I wrote that was in production in Belfast. I think they just wrapped up production last week. Um, now it's called Zone 414. I don't know when that'll be out. Probably next year at some point, I would imagine, with uh, you know editing and, and such. And I've got other things I'm cooking up that I can't really talk about. Sure. Uh, don't we all? <laughs> it's, that's always the danger, you know, talking to writers. is like, what are you doing? Well, I can't actually talk about it. But, I mean, you mentioned Titans. That's probably the thing that most people, you know, the most widely seen thing that you do. I would think so, yeah. And that you said that's on DC's streaming service, but presumably the production is run just like any other TV show. Yeah, I mean, it's just like any other streaming series, you know, something that you would see on Netflix or Hulu or, you know, any of those uh, channels. Hour-long live-action uh, drama. I'd probably say it's for adults, you know, um, or at least, like, older teens. It's not Teen Titans level like the uh, cartoon series. Um, but, right. But, yeah, it's a, it's a TV show like any other. Uh, we shoot in Toronto. Uh, you know, shout-out to Canada. Uh and uh, we are building the third season right now. I think both seasons are available, um, you know, kind of on various ways, depending on what region you're in. But, uh, yeah, uh, we're writing uh, season three at the moment. Okay, so that's something that I wanted to ask you about, because you know, some listeners presumably won't be familiar with how it works. So presumably you're in a writer's room with a bunch of other writers all collaborating. You say you're writing the third season at the moment. Do you write the whole season before anything gets filmed? No, unfortunately we can't. Um, sometimes it happens. I think the uh, the BBC stuff, they do that. They write the entire series before they shoot, as I understand it. But we try to bank about half of the scripts before production begins, if possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we're writing while we're shooting. Um, but we do plan out the entire season before production. So we have an, an idea of where things are going to go, but the, the nuance of individual episodes will get done kind of as we're shooting simultaneously. Right, but so you're breaking the season down and figuring out what's going to happen in each episode before, presumably before you start writing any of those scripts. Correct, correct. Because the studio has to know, uh, in our case, it's Warner Brothers. The studio needs to know what the season's going to be so they can approve that. And then once they're on board, we, we separate the individual story beats into various episodes, and then those episodes get assigned to different writers in the writer's room. Well, all right. Take us through the a typical day, if you like, then at this stage where you're breaking the season rather than you know sitting down to actually bang out the script, because you don't do that in the room. Presumably, you go home to do that. We get to go home while we write scripts. I know some shows, the showrunner... Okay, so 
every television show is a is a little fiefdom that's run by a showrunner. And the method of the showrunner is responsible for the rules of the show, right? So in our case, our showrunner, Greg Walker, who I like very much, he's a great guy, um, really kind of a masterful storyteller. You know, we will, at this stage, be sitting in a room talking about the kind of larger story moves for the season and maybe breaking things down into individual episodes in a general way. Uh, and then when we feel good about that, we will plan out each individual episode, you know, kind of break each episode, you know. And once the episode is broken, it gets assigned to a writer or it can get assigned to a writer like midway through. It it all depends on, you know, kind of if someone in the room might have like a real way in on the story as it's developing, right? And it'll become very clear to the room you know what? I think she should write this one because she really understands this. Or you get to the end of an episode and we just kind of talk about it or the showrunner assigns them to somebody. You know, it's all very kind of up to the showrunner how it goes. But at this stage, our day is mostly spent inside the room together, all of us around a table, uh, kind of talking through these story points, sharing kind of our perspective with the showrunner, uh, kind of picking and choosing, you know, from the different story pitches. A story pitch is just like a, an idea. Hey, wouldn't it be cool if so-and-so did this? Or wouldn't it be cool if conceptually we did this, you know? And then the showrunner's like, yeah, I like that, but what if we do like this little tweak on it? Or that's cool, but that's not really the vibe I want for the show. So let's let's try to find a different direction. You know, it's a lot of just like firing off ideas. You know, I I I look at this phase of the writer's room job is to really help the showrunner one discover what they want to do. And then two, get to where they want to go, right? I mean, when you're when it's not your show, you're there to facilitate someone else's vision. Mm. And so my job is primarily to understand what Greg wants to do and to contribute my experience and imagination towards his efforts, right? Which is the same thing I would want if I was running a show. You know, I would want to be able to tell my story, but I would want the the creative assistance from the writers that were kind of working underneath me. Okay, so you've hit on there one of the things that is kind of unique to TV writing, which is that you are not quite subsuming your own style, but in a sense, you are kind of, you're having to, uh, you know, part of your job is to almost mimic the showrunner's style mm. and their way of telling a story, which doesn't really happen in any other medium. So, but, and you started your career writing comic books. I think that was the first stuff you did, wasn't it? Well, yeah, it was simultaneous, uh, Anthony. It was like, oh, okay. So my my first paid writing job was a feature film I wrote, a Dolph Lundgren movie I wrote. Um, God, like in the early aughts or something, right? And uh, that was my first paid gig. And then from there, you know, I would like write a spec and then get it optioned, and you know, kind of tarry on for a little while, and then maybe get hired to rewrite a thing. And then I sold a script to Universal. Uh, and that brought me out to LA. It was my first like kind of outright script sale to a major studio. The Dolph Lundgren movie that was a you know kind of an independent thing. It was you know foreign financiers and the whole deal. Sure. And uh, the Universal project brought me out to LA. And then I spent about a year like selling a pitch, writing a script, you know, getting paid that way, paying my bills that way. And uh, and then I started writing comics. I was kind of writing comics in the middle of all of this, but I didn't really become. I would think a consistent comic book writer until, you know, after I'd sold a couple of screenplays. Oh, okay. Okay. So, but either way, again, those were feature screenplays and then comic scripts. 
the point I was sort of driving towards was that they were things where you're writing in your voice. And that's mm, part of yeah. what you're being hired for is to write mm-hmm. your stories in your voice and the kind of things that you want to do. So how how was it moving to something like TV? Um, and I'm sure you knew this going in. Everybody knows going in that this is what TV requires. But nevertheless, what was it like to go into something where, yeah, your part of the job is actually deliberately not writing completely in your own voice? Well, you know, uh, funnily enough, it reminds me of the um, the year I spent in advertising after I graduated from NYU. And I went to film school and then I uh, graduated and worked in advertising, just low-level stuff, Ogilvy and Mather, um, Wyden Kennedy, that kind of stuff, Madison Avenue stuff. And, you know, in, in that scenario, I was there to kind of fire off ideas just so that energy and experience that I brought could also be part of the whiteboard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and t- television is a lot of the same thing. I mean, I, you know, I have a very strange way of look at the world. You know, I have a lot of antinomian beliefs, um, you know, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm there like everyone else is there, I think because of the different way they see things. Right. And the, the showrunner is kind of the arbiter of everyone's imagination. Uh, and so when it comes to the actual like writing of the script, you know, I have to write in the tone of the television series. Right. And I have to write the characters that have been decided upon and, and the ways that they've been developed. I can't suddenly take a left turn with a character, you know, in the, uh, in the script. Right. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's easy for me because I still work in other forms simultaneously. I'm still writing screenplays, you know, I'm still writing comics. I'm, I'm writing a script that I intend to direct, uh, uh, by the end of the year. So because I can express myself fully in other forms, um, even in my like pure art stuff, like photography and music, whatever, um, it's easier for me to just be part of a whole, you know, because it's Mm -hmm. not the only thing that I was doing. I think if it was the only thing that I was doing and it was my only professional creative outlet, I might be a little frustrated, but because it's not, um, you know, it's kind of interesting to try to do it. You know, I kind of look at everything like a challenge and an exercise. Um, and sometimes dancing to someone else's rhythm, you know, and kind of uh, playing the game in a way that you probably wouldn't play it on your own can teach you some things about your game because it breaks you out of your habits, right? Your assumptions, you know? Uh, and I don't think there's any television writer working on a show that agrees with everything that happens on the show, right? I mean, you just can't. We're human beings and we all see things a little differently. Um, but you know, you don't, you, the job is the job, right? And so, uh, you have to put aside those kind of ego based things and then do the best you can to, you know, work within the parameters you're given. Well, and there's that old sore, isn't there, about how, uh, restrictions breed creativity. Yeah. And I, I think that's mostly true, you know? Um, and sometimes you, you don't know what you feel about something until you you feel an opposite way, right? Until you realize, oh, I, I, I don't really like that. But then it teaches you what you really do like, <laughs> right? You know, and and you you can learn sometimes by doing that that stuff. Um, so in that way, I, I think it's really enriching, you know. And we happen to have a uh, a really generous showrunner on Titans, so he's open and supportive of all of our difference, you know. And and that's great because you don't feel like you're being kind of browbeaten by a tyrant 
every day. And there are some shows that are frankly like that. You know, I don't, I don't want to name names, but you hear the horror stories all the time, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. There are environments that are, you know, cutthroat and intensely political and people are, you know, trying to undercut you so they can rise within the room. And, you know, Titans doesn't have any of that. We all like each other, which is fantastic. Uh, I think we all respect one another's talent and that's great. Um, and we really like the showrunner, you know, we like Greg and we want Greg to be happy with the show that's being produced. And that, that really supersedes everything else. You know, I'm not a person driven by fiscal stuff. I'm just not. And, you know, I've never been one to sit and dream of winning an Emmy or, you know, being at the cool kids table. Like none of that matters to me. Um, uh, I tend to be driven by the spirit of the people I'm collaborating with. And if I like the people, then I like the project, right? And, and I like Greg. So it's not difficult to want him to succeed, if that makes sense. Oh, totally, yeah. And, I mean, that's something that you come to realize the longer you work in a collaborative environment is the importance of just getting along with the people you collaborate with. No matter how important or significant the work may be, if you're working with people you don't like and it more so don't respect then you start to think hang on why am i doing this is this really worth it yeah i mean i i have a rule i don't work with people if i don't like them you know i just won't i i have said no to a lot of pretty decent opportunities because i just didn't like the people that were offering them to me. and a uh, life is too short you know <laughs> so exactly I, no it, it's exactly it life's too short and you have to look at yourself in the mirror the next day you know completely you know Completely. So how many how many writers are there in that room at the moment? Ooh, let's see. We have about nine writers. Okay. So it's a yeah. relatively small room. Um, I mean, I know some of the – so we are 13 episodes. Um, you know, network shows tend to be about 22. Mm-hmm. And on a network show, you probably have, you know, 17, 18, even 20 writers on a show, right? That's another thing that some people, I think, don't realize about uh, TV shows is that you know, if you're a staff writer on a show, you might only write one episode each season. And, and, and maybe not even that. Um, you know, staff writer is the first level, right? So I, I didn't necessarily mean staff writer, the, the job title, but yes, I'll tell oh, you. Oh, okay. Got it. Um, but, uh, and for those listening, so there are different job titles for writers in a television writer, writer's room. It's a little corporate where you ideally you go up a level every year. You're on the same show. Sometimes it doesn't happen in different cases, but ideally that's what happens. So staff writer is the first level. Uh, and if you're a first level TV writer, for instance, you may not get a script. Um, you know, it just might not happen. Uh, and, you know, like, like, so that kind of speaks to those competitive environments, because if you have environments where everyone may not get a script, then people are jockeying now to get a script and, and not be left behind and it can get weird. Because we only have nine writers, you know, everyone's going to write, you know, and, and that's great. So, you know, going into it that you're going to write something, you know, you're going to get an episode uh, of, of the show to write, you know, you might not get two, maybe the higher level writers would get two, but um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we know that we're going to end up writing at least one episode uh, every season. And which is uh, financially important. Uh, isn't it as well as i mean it's obviously it's good from a sort of career credit ego point of view but uh you know it's also important because you get paid for that script 
It it is, but according to WGA uh, rules, um, not not just the union rules, but kind of the, the union rules in line with the business practice. The staff writers, the first level writers, do not get paid for their scripts. Oh no, that's true. I forgot that. Yeah, they don't get a separate fee, do they? Yeah. Yeah, you can write a script, but you won't get paid for the script. You don't get paid for the script until you become a story editor. I think. Uh, which is the second level. Which is level two, and yeah. That's level two. And then you will get paid for your scripts. And then if you continue to write, um, you know, you continue to be on the same show and ascend, you get paid, you know, for for your scripts. And you might get like a little more uh, for a script. But and yeah, and you get a separate fee for the script than you do for your, your weekly salary on the show. So you you said that you started, you went to NYU. What did you study there? Uh, film and television production. I went to NYU to be a filmmaker. Right. So you, okay. So you always had the intention of being in, you know, the business of screen TV, whatever, you know, of writing entertainment. Um, but, but you said you then, when you, when you came out, you went into advertising for a year. So how did you, you know, how did you get started? Uh, what was your, I mean, that Dolph Lundgren movie, I assume was your first break, but what kind of led up to you making the move to LA and, you know, was involved in that decision? When I came out of NYU, I, I stuck around New York and, you know, just kind of worked in advertising and like kind of temp stuff, honestly, but, you know, it was getting glorified temp work basically um, because they would pay and they cared about the fact that I had a media degree. Uh, and I did that for a little while until it started to smell like it was going to become a career. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I get you. And then I was like, ooh, I don't want to do this though. I don't, this is not the <laughs> career I want. So I better, you know, better kind of figure something else out. And so I stepped away from, from that, when the responsibility started to mount and it looked like people wanted to give me a permanent cubicle and, um, you know, and then I would just do odd jobs and I was just writing all the time, but I never really had any intention of being a Hollywood storyteller. I was always focused on being an independent filmmaker and I was only writing screenplays because I didn't know how to acquire a screenplay otherwise. Right. You know, and I figured, well, if I can generate my own scripts, then I can try to raise money to make those scripts and then I can be a filmmaker. Um, and so that was really my, my focus. It was writing things I intended to make. And, uh, I would mess around every now and then, and I would write like a high concept action thing and, and, uh, um, you know, just kind of have it in the, in the uh, portfolio in case, you know, like, oh, well, if, you know, if I can sell a screenplay, that'll help fund my independent filmmaking. Right. Which is how my mind worked. Kind of still how my mind works now, to be honest, Anthony. And, uh, I just, you know, kept firing off scripts to managers and agents and I got my representatives because I wrote a script that I intended to make and I sent it to the manager of an actor I wanted to cast in the movie, um, not to sell it, but to see if I could get the actor to read it, perhaps attach themselves to the project. Right. 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 And then like, okay, well, if they can attach themselves to the project, then I can go out and talk to, you know, every dentist I know and try to get like. 25 grand, you know, from 10 dentists and maybe I can make this <laughs> yeah. 16 millimeter, you know, Steven Soderbergh thing. Right. Like that was where my mind, was. everybody wants to have their name on a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That, that was my mindset. Right. My mindset was always Hollywood is not going to, going to help you. You know, that that's not going to be how you do it. You might sell a thing, but you're going to have to do all of this on your own. Um, and the manager read the script and asked me if I had a rep and I'm like, no, I don't have a rep, you know? Uh, um, I uh, hadn't really thought about a manager or any of that. And he asked me if I was interested in one. And I asked him if it was going to cost me anything. 
And then he said, no, not unless you make money, then it's going to cost you 10%. And I'm like, oh, 10% of theoretical money. Yeah, you're on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's how I got repped. And then he introduced me to a bunch of executives and then you take a bunch of meetings and, you know, and then you kind of drip drab your way into the business. Um, and I honestly think one of the advantages I had when I would meet with executives and I would, you know, read the scripts they wanted a writer to maybe pitch on or what have you, uh, was I wasn't invested into being a Hollywood person. So I didn't have a lot of skin in that game. You know, it was, yeah. it, the, the, I wasn't stressed out because I, I had no desire to be like a Hollywood centric filmmaker. So I just figured this was a job and it, you know, it could take care of my bills so I could buy a light, you know? <laughs> or, well, and I mean, that's really important in negotiations and these meetings, you know, when you do the meetings with execs and you go around town, they are really negotiate. You're negotiating for like, you know, are you going to give me some work? But any negotiation always goes better for you, you know, for the creative. If you don't care, frankly, you know, if you're like, yeah, I'll do this, like if it's interesting, but otherwise I've got my own stuff going on. I'm not really that bothered. Yeah, and I, I wasn't callous or rude. It just, um, you know, I didn't have any self-esteem attached to, you know, dining at the Chateau Mormont or, you know, or <laughs> being like an, an Angelino. You know, I never thought I would actually move to Los Angeles. I, uh, I always assumed I would stay in New York and then I had to move to St. Louis, Missouri, where I'm from when my grandmother took ill. But I never really had any intention to move to L.A. until I sold that script to uni. Uh, and then I had so many meetings. You know, because when you sell a script, you get really kind of, you know, not fancy, but people are interested in the person who sold the script, right? Yeah. They want to meet the new writer in town. And your calendar just gets filled with stuff. General meetings, you know, no one's rolling out a red carpet for you, but, you know, they want to meet with you. Um, and it just seemed pragmatic to live in Los Angeles rather than take flights from St. Louis to L.A. and pay for a hotel and the rest of it. And I'm like, well, you know, I'll sign a six month or a year lease. And, um, I was married. So I'm like, Oh, my wife can come out with me and we'll see if we stay here or we won't, but we'll, you know, we'll have a go. Um, and that's how like eight years ago I wound up in Los Angeles. So that's interesting that you had the, uh, the attitude of using, and that you said you still have to an extent, the attitude of using the, the money you earn from, you know, working for the man or whatever you want to call it to finance your own stuff you know the stuff that you own your original work the you know the the one for me one for the studio kind of mentality yeah and and i think a lot of that um came from the environment that i was educated within uh during my time at nyu you know nyu is a at least at the time was an independent filmmaking hub you know like our lecturers were like spike lee and and todd solons you know and right, you know, it was right. all like self-starting stuff like, how do you make a movie with no money? How do you make a movie with a little bit of money? How do you get things together, right? So it was very much like film as small business you have to start was kind of the mentality there. I think USC has a bit of a different mentality where uh, it's very much about the system and how you can yeah. rise within the system, you know, the CAA of it all and all that. Um, so, you know, being kind of like, and, and you know, at this time, remember I was, you know, in college, right? So... I'm barely in my twenties. So all of my formative years, my, my important, you know, as Morrissey would say, my early burglary years, uh, those were all New York years, you know? And so th that kind of seeped in 
to my mindset and my worldview, the kind of stay independent, you know, don't, don't trust the system to take care of you. Like figure out how you can build your own revenue streams and take care of yourself. Right. So I just ported that attitude over into the rest of my creative business. But it's not like I have an adversarial relationship because um, you won't get any work if you have an adversarial relationship. I just think that um, people can sort of sense that I'm not looking for validation. I'm just looking for things that are interesting to me creatively, things that I think I can offer something to. Right. No, no, no. I, and that is that's exactly the sort of thing that I meant. Yeah. It, as you say, it's a very independent attitude. I imagine that probably stood you in fairly good stead, actually, when you then started working in comics. because. Something you said there made me think of, you know, the adage of like, how do you make a film? Well, you make a film. And how right. people say that in, in comics all the time. How do you make a comic? Will you go and make a comic? There's nothing stopping you from doing it. Uh, right. The only barriers in your way are access to markets and sales and things like that. But there's nothing stopping you from actually just making a comic. And so having that uh, similar attitude towards filmmaking, I imagine probably was good for you when you entered the comics world. For sure. I mean, you know, it, I, I just look at everything like it's a capital problem. You know, if you have the capital to do something and that capital can be money, that capital can be connections, resources, time, you know, at, at one point capital, like, like money liquid was the most important thing, right? That was the thing that I needed. I needed that. I didn't have that. I needed that. I didn't have that. Now it's more time, Anthony. Mm-hmm. You know, time is my most precious capital. So now I have I have the money to make things, but I don't have the time to make things. <laughs> right? So so it's always a matter of trying to find like, you know, kind of that capital. But I yeah, I love the comics the same way. Like when I started writing comics, I I I mean I had written like a thing here and a thing there, but like the real thing that uh that really got me started was a book called Postal that I wrote uh, for Top Cow Image Comics. And I did about 25 issues uh, of that. You know, I, I didn't have any, any like, plans for my career in comics. I, I tend to work on the thing in front of me at the time. So when I was working on Postal, well, I was working on Postal. And I wasn't always thinking about, how can I leverage this to get to Marvel? How can I leverage this to get to DC? I didn't even think I would ever work for Marvel or DC. That was never part of my plan. You know, I, I appreciated being able to publish something to get my work on a shelf because anything as a writer that you have that that's out there with an is you know, with a, with a price point helps your brand as a writer. Absolutely. Writing comics helped me gain value as a screenwriter because I'm already published. So the question of whether or not I can be professional or something. It was kind of eroded once I started publishing comics regularly. And then you have reviews on Google and then you have uh, you know a little bit of a fan base and people are interacting with you on social media and all these things. Right? Um, but, but yeah, you know, I kind of always have approached my career the same way. You know, it's, it's for everything that I achieve, I, I analyze it and I hope is an objective way. Um, and then see what, what can I do to reapply what I've gained to my own pursuits? Right. Mm -hmm. Like, it's almost like, you know, it's like investing money, right? Like you make a bunch of money. Well, you could buy a Ferrari, which is cool. Or you could buy a Hyundai and maybe buy some real estate. 
Which will then continue to earn you money. <laughs> Which will continue to earn you, earn you money. And then maybe from that money, you buy the Ferrari, right? So, I've, yeah, I've always viewed everything kind of as, you know, how do I take what I'm doing and refunnel that back into what I really want to do and then, you know, keep the momentum going, but never become dependent on one thing or another thing. Uh, let's move away from the industry stuff then into more talk about your kind of your process and your approach to craft sure when you are at home right writing a screenplay um what's your typical day like there how how long on average do you spend writing say you know uh, a tv script well i can comfortably write about 20 pages a day and wow that's a lot i hear that um uh but i don't i've kind of always been like that like it's it's just uh you know it's kind of the way my brain works you know, I can, oh, that's good. I I applaud you. That's 20 pages a day. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I generally write like a, I write an issue of a comic book in one sitting usually. So, whoa, man. <laughs> now, that, now, it means I've thought about it, though. Right. So it's not like I'm going from conception to drafting. I, I've I've probably thought about it at, at, you know, while working out. I've kind of put it in my mind oven for a while. But yeah, like once I type page one, panel one. I can write the whole comic in one sitting. Right. So we'll talk a bit more about that planning stage then. So do you do you sit there and write out an outline? Um, okay, so for everything it's a little different. For comics, I I write like maybe five or six sentences of things that I I want to happen in the book. Right? Mm-hmm. These things need to happen. And then I do it in pages or word. Um and then once I write the things out that I know wanna I want to happen. I just kind of copy and paste them into an order. <laughs> right? Well, okay. <laughs> well, that should happen before that and that should happen last and you know and that kind of becomes a kind of quasi outline. But very very brief outline by the time. I mean very much a skeleton. Very loose, very loose. And then I just kind of start writing uh from that. And I'll uh get through my draft and you know let's say if I start at noon, I'll be done by 8 p.m. Um, I'll eat dinner and then I'll probably look it over again before I go to bed and make a couple nips and tucks here and there. And then I'll probably send it off to the editorial. Um, and then, um, for a screenplay, you know, I, I tend to write like, uh, not a detailed outline, but you know, like kind of what you do in TV, you know, like a slug line and what happens in the scene. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll do that. And, you know, when you have about 33 of those, you got a script. Um, and you know, and I, I've already thought about it like broadly, like while I'm outlining, I'm thinking about what's my midpoint, what's my climax, you know, what's my break into two, like I kind of have those big signposts, right? And then I fill in everything in between those signposts and then I just sort of go uh, and and just kind of get through the draft. Because um, uh, I like to get the draft down, then rewrite. But um, but yeah, so that's that's a lot of my process. And, and for me, it's very similar to writing music in a way. You know, once I, that, like the outline is like the melody. Right. Like, okay. When I have an outline, I know what the melody is. And then when I'm writing the screenplay, it's like building the song. You know, okay, well, that's the harmony goes in there. And then the chorus should probably happen here. And then we need a middle eight here. And then, you know, so it's, it's very similar to writing a piece of music for me. And I think that's why I can work so fast is because it's very rhythmic for me. You know, it's, it's, um, it, there's a lot of flow in my process. I try to kind of remove all the friction. So the purpose of the outline, uh, any sort of plan, is to remove any friction from the act of writing. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so the the part where I'm like consciously thinking, like, oh, I'm doing do this, do this, and I can call back there, and I can, like, all of that is in my, my, you know, on a long walk, I'm thinking about things, I'm talking to myself on my phone, and or I'll just, you know, have it in my head, come upstairs, put it on a notepad, whatever it is. And I'll get all of that stuff down. And it might be really messy, but it makes sense to me. Um, and then when I'm writing, I never have to worry about what happens next. You know, I, I do not like to wonder what happens next while I'm in the act of writing. You know, I, I like to just kind of go, <laughs> right? I know, I know what's going to happen. It's just a matter of, am I going to keep writing the scene or not? So I was going to ask about your note taking process. So it sounds like you use a fairly ad hoc mixture of you have a notebook, but you also, uh, you know, effectively use your phone like a dictaphone. I do. Sometimes I do. Yeah. And, um, you know, for me, it's always character is my first way in. Um, so I think a lot about the characters, you know, and it's a lot of us, me in my head before I actually start writing anything down. And once I get a sense of the characters and, you know, kind of how they feel and how they would sound. And it's all kind of happening in my mind's eye. Then I start planning out the outline, you know, uh, uh, again, like the first thing I do is I put down my signposts. What's, how does it open, break into two midpoint, end of the second act, uh, you know, beginning of the third act, climax, denouement, right? I have those. Once I have those scenes, then filling in the rest gets pretty easy. Interesting. Because I know where I got to go, right? I got to get from here to there and, and then this has to happen. And I want to get there. So the stuff with the stuff with the dictaphone, I mean, do you, do you write, do you transcribe that? Do you type it up or is just the act of putting it, you know, of recording it as a voice memo, is that enough to sort of kind of cement it in your mind? It's usually enough, honestly, you know, usually just kind of getting it down, keeps it in my thought process. Like it's, Best way I can explain it is when you first have that notion, it's as fragile as a soap bubble and almost anything can burst it. You know, like my, my, my wife knocking on my door, my dog, my cat, like my phone ringing. Right. So the moment I have it, I have to either write it down or speak it into a thing. And then it gets very solid. You know, something about translating it, almost like moving it out of my mind into this world keeps it from just leaving my thoughts. And so, you know, sometimes I'll listen to stuff. Sometimes I won't. Sometimes I'll just do dialogue. Right. You know, a line will come to me or something will happen and I just kind of want to gonna read it out. Uh, and then once I get all that stuff down and I know I have an outline, at least those major signposts and some of those scenes, and I will improvise, you know, oh, you know, the next scene should happen over here. And then I'll, you know, do that. But I will know where I'm going. Once I have those things down, then I usually, uh, I meditate. I sit down, I close my eyes, and I play the movie in my head. Or I read the comic in my mind. I turn all the pages. And so I've seen it. Now, it happens not in real time. Like, you know, like, it sort of happens in weird mental speed. Inception time. <laughs> Wait, it, like, it's inception time, right? So I might see the entire movie in my head in, like, 25 minutes, even though the script itself would be 110 pages. Right. But I've seen it. Um, and so I know it works at least enough for me to go write it. So it's almost like when I'm writing it, I'm adapting a movie I already watched, if that makes any sense at all. It makes a little sense because funnily enough, you know, Garth Ennis says the same thing about when he's writing comics is that he's, he's seeing the whole thing in his mind as a movie. And he's just, you know, he's just typing out what happens. 
Yeah, and I think that's honestly because I'm really a filmmaker masquerading as a writer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm a very visual thinker, you know. And uh, um, well, I was just on a walk today, and I was thinking about um, I have to finish the issue of Batman and the Outsiders today. And I was just walking around, and I just I was just kind of seeing the pages in my mind. I was like, okay. And especially if, in comics, it's easier, right? Because I know what it's going to look like when I write it, because I know my artist's work. Right. Yeah. So I have a very good estimation of how Dexter Soy, in this case, he's an artist on Batman and the Outsiders, how Dexter is going to draw this book. So what's what's in my mind's eye is usually 85% close to what winds up coming back through my email. Um, and uh, yeah, once I can page through the comic in my in my brain, I can just sit down and write the comic I saw. Now with the movie, it's different. The movie, I'm seeing it, I'm seeing the movie I would direct. Right. Yeah. Which is different than, you know, what a movie would wind up being. But, uh, and I don't put a lot of directorial indication in a script. You're not supposed to. I have like the Walter Hill kind of philosophy where uh, Walter Hill was a screenwriter and a director, um, for those that don't know. And he, um, he wrote a, a lot of kind of seminal works, 48 Hours, uh, Alien. He did a draft of that, uh, the draft that was closest to the Ridley Scott film. Um, many, many other things. And, and, and Hill had a very, uh, kind of almost like a haiku like style, which I do not use, but if anyone can, uh, everyone's curious about that. I strongly suggest tracking down his draft of alien because it's beautifully written in sort of a maverick style, but there's a lot of white on the page. Um, a more recent example would be the work of Michael green, uh, whose work I admire very much screenwriter. He wrote, uh, 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 blade runner 2049. And, um, even though that movie is rich with visual detail and directorial choices, the script is pretty bare. You know, it's just enough indication for you to know what's happening, but no more than that. And uh, that's how I try to write. So even though I see things in my head in a very detailed way, almost down to the music I would hear during the scenes and everything, uh, um, what I write is a slug line, a few sentences that set the stage for what is to come, and then dialogue with the bare minimum of indication, almost like a stage play. That's really interesting that you should mention uh, Blade Runner 2049, because I was about to cite another Denis Villeneuve movie, actually, Arrival. Uh, have you read Eric Heiser's screenplay? I haven't actually read Eric's work, and I should. It's terrible. I know. He's brilliant. And such a nice guy, too. You really should read the Arrival screenplay, because it is... Uh, and I, I, I keep... It's it's one of my things that I just tell everybody they should read it because it is an absolute masterclass in minimalism. Everything that is on the screen is in that screenplay, but at the same time, almost nothing specifically that's on the screen is in that screenplay, if that makes sense. No, it makes absolute sense. It's a yeah. gift to a director like Villeneuve because you can read it and go, I know exactly what's happening here but there is nothing specific. So I can do whatever I want in terms of how it looks. It's, it's brilliant. That was the biggest change I had to make with my style when I started working in television because um, my initial scripts were very minimal uh, because that was how I wrote screenplays. And, and Greg wanted me to put way more indication on the page because that has to go through these different channels. Right. And it's you, you have to direct a little bit on the page in television, or at least we do. Right. Because you want to make sure that what what's intended is communicated, you know, and 
And that was a, a shift for me because that was not my natural style for writing. You know, I, I, being a filmmaker myself, I never want to get in the way of the filmmaker. Yeah. And, uh, I never want to direct for the filmmaker on the page, you know, and I, and I don't even indicate actor like emotions and things like that. Really. I mean, if it's really important to know, like, for instance, if, if a character's expression of anger physically changes the nature of the scene, then yes, I indicate it. Right. So if right. a husband is arguing with his wife and he suddenly grabs a vase off the table and throws it against the wall, I have to indicate that because that changes the nature of the drama. So that's so that I put there. But beyond that, I tend to not indicate very much about performance. I don't, um, I don't highlight, you know, the thoughts, the emotions of the character. I try to let it all live in the dialogue and the dramatic action, you know, but in television, you sort of need to do those things because, uh, uh, you know, you're, it's a script, but it's also a plan in a way that a screenplay isn't, if that makes any sense. Right. It's like, you know, in a, in a film, like, you know, the film that was uh, shooting in Belfast, uh, that just wrapped up that I wrote. Well, I had multiple conversations with the director. So it was in those conversations that that nuance was discovered, but it wasn't yeah. on the page because he was contributing his vision to that, you know, okay. And the characters are going to do that and feel that. And so, you know, so it was a kind of mutual collaborative work, but in television, I have to put that indication there to make sure it winds up on screen. Because you have a director, no matter how talented they are, they're coming in from another show. And that show has a completely different culture. And you get like 14 days with them or something, yeah. And you get 14 days with them, right? And they haven't met any of your actors before, most likely. And even if they have, they probably haven't met them as these characters before. So they're in a hurry-up offense, watching as much of the show as they can watch within a very short amount of time. And they need a script that has way more indication on it so they can execute this stuff. You know, directing TV is a lot about executing the page rather than kind of bringing your own style to it. Well, and not dissimilar, as you as we said right at the start, to being a writer on a TV show. Again, you know, you are kind of, I mean, a director is not necessarily trying to uh, imitate or mimic somebody else's style, but the show has to look like the show. Yeah, the show has to look like the show, right? So the you know, the DP and all that, like all that stuff is, is indicated. And for a writer, um, you know, you, you're sometimes asked to, Oh, well, can you talk about what Dick Grayson's feeling in this moment? You know, or can you indicate kind of what's going on in Donna Troy's thoughts here? Right. Which is never what I would do on a screenplay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I would leave that up to the actor. Right. Like, you know, like that's not, that's not my task as a screenwriter to tell the actor what their work is. My task is to give them dialogue and then they do it. Right. So that was a huge difference between, um, you know, my, my work in screenwriting and my work in television. And it's still very, very, very different. Right. So like a, you know, a screenplay that you get from me is not going to feel at all like a teleplay that you get from me. So when you're, I mean, so you, you barrel through a draft pretty quickly then do you then spend a lot of time going back and revising? Or, you know, are you pretty happy with it when it's done the first time through? Because it sounds like you spend a lot of time thinking about it before you actually then start typing anything. I do. I do. Like, you know, normally when you sign a contract to write a script, you get like six weeks to turn in the script. I spend four and a half of those weeks thinking. 
and then I spend, you know, two weeks writing. Right. So, uh, uh, cause I, I like to just kind of live with it for a bit, you know, and, and sometimes mm-hmm. I'll make huge playlists of music or something and just kind of get moments down, you know, uh, go grab a, a, a folder full of JPEGs that somehow speak to the world or whatever. And it's really kind of give it its own vibe. Right. Um, now my process, even though I look if I, if, if someone forced me, I could probably write a draft of a script in two days. If I was forced, wow. I've done it before, uh, under circumstances. Um, <laughs> you know, so I don't physically think I, I could actually, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but I don't think even if I sat at my desk for 12 hours every day that I could physically write 110 pages. Yeah, yeah, I had, you know, it was, you know, you learn how to do something when you have to do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and I was on a job and that was the job and I had to do it. So I just did it. I can only say, I hope you got very well compensated for it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was, it was one of those things where it wasn't a job on Monday. It was a job on Tuesday. You did it Wednesday and Thursday and you were paid on Friday. Wow. Right. Yeah. It was like, you know, it was super quick. Right. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, normally I try to write about 15, you know, 10 to 15 pages a day. Sometimes I'll do 20 if I'm really in the flow. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, try you know, probably no more than like an eight hour session at the desk. Right. I try not to be at my desk for more than eight hours, mainly for my health. You know, I don't yeah, just yeah, be yeah. sitting down for a billion hours every day. Um, and so my, my day will be like, I'll get up, I'll walk for about two and a half hours, um, maybe do some push ups. You know, and yeah, I try to get about 15,000 steps in a day and uh, do some push-ups. So I feel like I've done something active. So when I'm, so by the time I'm sitting down, I'm ready to sit down, you know? Yeah. Well, and you've been thinking that whole time And I've been well. thinking that whole time. So the whole time I've been walking, I'm playing my music and I'm thinking through everything. And so I'm really warmed up creatively and I'm worn down physically, which means sitting in the chair doesn't feel like lethargy. It just feels necessary, right? So then I'm in my chair. And, and if I get up at five o'clock in the morning, I'm in the chair by seven 45. Um, and, and then I'll start writing and I try to do about, you know, no less than 10 pages. I try to do no more than 20, even though, even if, if I feel I could, just cause I don't have to, you know? And then the next day when I sit down, the first thing I do is revise the work I did previously. Oh, you're one of those. Right. I iron the shirt. Right. So, right. So, you know, the first day I revised the first 20 pages I did, and I kind of tweaked that, make that more efficient, you know, learn things, whatever. And that revising portion, which only takes about, you know, maybe an hour or so, um, that warms me up for the next set of pages. And then the next day I'll re, re uh, revise everything I've written to that point. Right. So let's say the next day I've got 40 pages to start with. Well, I'll revise that 40 pages. And then I'll add 20 more. So as time goes on, you're leaving yourself less and less time to actually write new stuff each day. Yes, but it's easier to write the new stuff each day because I'm so fluent in the text by then. Right. 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 Um, and then, you know, it, it's it, for, for me, the hardest is always up to the midpoint. And then once I'm at the midpoint, it's like a ball rolling downhill. You know, just like structurally, it's just, you know, the, uh, everything is kind of, there's so much more moment, like momentum in the story, really. Right. And, and if you, as long as you know what your turn from two to three 
from act two to act three is then yeah as you say from the midpoint onwards you're just like okay well now everything just needs to happen right <laughs> now everything just needs to happen and, I, and i've known what those signposts are and it's not that none of that stuff will change sometimes it changes but um i have a pretty solid plan in place now since i write mostly character driven genre projects science fiction action thriller horror right so um with action stuff i never write action scenes in my first draft oh interesting for instance let's say i was going to write atomic blonde right let's say i get hired to adapt coldest winter right and like okay brian you're gonna you know you're gonna adapt anthony's book and and this so you know i'd I'd have the story i would never write the action sequences in the first draft the first draft might only be like 75 pages but it will be the scenes because it's missing the action scenes yeah yeah but i can write all of the action scenes in one day if i can just focus on action oh i i envy you so much man (laughs) i hate writing action scenes (laughs) no but see it's tricky though because i i still have to make sure that story is being told in the action sequence right so in my in my outline i'll be like okay you know lorraine starts here and she winds up here in terms of her character arc. Like what does this action sequence change inside of Lorraine? Right. Every, every fight is a conversation. Every fight is a conversation. You have to always be telling story, right? No matter what's happening, whether it's a car race or a sex scene, whatever it is, characters have to be changing. You have to always be telling story, right? So I would say, okay, so at the end of, you know, the stairwell fight, this is where her character is physically and emotionally and psychologically, what have you. Um, and so I know I'm writing the character in that state from that point on, but I've just left like a few sentences of what happens in the action sequence. I mean, I'll just be like, okay, there, you know, this and then there's going to be a killer and there might be a killer in the hotel room. And then, you know, this and it's kind of rough and tumble. And, and so I put like three sentences or something about what the action is. Um, and then I'll just keep writing the script and then I'll just go back. And that's when I just put on like, you know, like for for Atomic Blonde, I would just put on, you know, Bauhaus eighties deep bass <laughs> stuff, and I would just like be living in that energy, and just write the action sequences because I can just be in that part of it. It's almost like, again, I have to go back to the music analogy. For me, action sequences are like the hook of the song, right? So you know where the hook's gonna go in the song. But I don't, I can't rap the lyrics and then rap the hook, right? I have to just be a lyricist and rap the lyrics and get those down. And then once I have the lyrics down, well, then I can have like a glass of Hennessy or something and then start working on the hook. (laughs) 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 Because that's all, because it's more primal. Because the, you know, the, the, the action sequences, it's, it's the fizzle, it's like, like, you know, the kind of the externalization of emotion and drama, right? It's more instinctual. It's about adrenaline and it's ripe with those kind of on the razor blade emotions. So, uh, I need to be in that emotional place when I'm doing it and to switch from that into a drama scene and then back again. Oh man, that would wreck my process. So I do the drama first. Right. Then I come back and do the action, and then I'll look over it all, and I'll blend it and make sure everything is intact. Right, right, and massage the edges, like yeah, yeah, sand off the rough bits. Do you know that's really funny because I I'm actually the same in in one way in that I also leave action sequences until last, 
but the difference is that's because I hate writing them. Um, and so <laughs> I just, I, I put that off continually until I simply have nothing else left to write. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'd better write the action scenes now. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I really didn't enjoy writing them. Um, although I was told I had a knack for them, but I didn't enjoy the process. Well, that's the thing. People tell me that mine are quite good, but <laughs> because because you because you wrestle with it, right? Because that's I maybe think, I think that's what it is. Um, reading Tony Gilroy's work helped me out a lot. Oh yeah, okay. The Born Supremacy uh, script. I think that's the second film, right? Yeah, I think so. The way that uh, Gilroy writes the uh, the the car chase thing, the way he spaces it out. And and does it rhythmically just made sense to me. And I think a lot of a lot of technique is, you know, struggling until you find someone who does it in a way that makes sense to you. You know? Right. And everyone like Michael Mann, I love Michael Mann's films, but writing the way Michael Mann writes would probably kill me. <laughs> because it's it's so dense. Like his yeah, scripts yeah. are so dense, you know. And it would it would feel like a novel, but not. And I could do it, but man, it would just kind of uh I think it would close me down creatively, right? But um, you know, uh like what you're telling me about a Heiser's script or or Michael Green's script, Tony Gilroy, like their approach makes sense. So yeah, so in 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 those kinds of pictures, um any like even a horror picture, right? Like uh, any, any of the booze, I call them booze, the scare yeah. moments in the horror movie. I always do the booze after I do the drama. Right, right. Because it's the same thing. That's the, as you say, that's the hook. Yep. All right. So starting to close this out, uh, what do you think you're good at? Like when you look back at you know, your, your scripts or your comic books and stuff, what do you go, actually, you know, that's pretty good. I think I'm, I think I'm probably best at uh, introducing traditionally dramatic character elements into genre work. Right. Meaning like I can turn a B movie into an A movie, but it still has the fun of a B movie. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get you. I get you. You know, and I think that's, that's me living between two worlds because I love independent film. I love dramatic film. I love classic film, but I also love like popcorn munching dumb movies. Yeah. <laughs> and so nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I, what I, what I usually get hired to do is take something that maybe has like a decent concept, um, but the characters are very thin, you know, but like I can look at it and be like, oh, well, this could be a lot more rich and interesting if we just did this with these characters, but we can preserve all of the fun and the cool too. All right. So conversely, what do you wish you were better at? Oh, comedy. Oh, interesting. I'm not particularly funny. Like, you know, I can, I can get to a chuckle, but I, it's hard for me to get to a guffaw. A good friend of mine, Dan Ewan, um, who's a screenwriter. He's incredibly funny. Uh, he just wrote the John Cena fireman movie, uh, playing with fire. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's like a family comedy, uh, thing, but his, his, his instrument, you know, it kind of goes the whole gamut. That guy is just naturally with it. You know, he can just make something hilarious. Um, and, that's something I'm not great at. Like if I tried to write an action comedy, it would come out like lethal weapon. I mean, that's not a bad comp. 
<laughs> no, no, honest. but but you know, but Lethal <laughs> Weapon, but but Lethal Weapon is it's a little dark, right? Like it's it's gallows humor, yeah. It's yeah, the the humor is gallows humor. It's it's um yeah, like Men in Black. That's you know, like I'm just not I'm not that dude, right? Like it's so I wish I was was better at that. Um, like I wrote an issue of Miles Morales Spider Man, and it was the hardest thing I've ever written in comics because it had to be kind of funny. Yeah. Because of Spider Man, you know, and I'm like, oh yeah, no, I know. this is not my wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> I've written, I think, uh, precisely three panels featuring Spider-Man uh, in my comics career uh, because it was a crossover. It was the Shang-Chi miniseries and the Spider-Island crossover, and Spider-Man had to be in it. So he was literally in like two or three panels or something. Right, right. And I was like, oh, God, I've got to come up with a joke. He, he's got to say, it's Spider-Man. It's his only appearance. He's got to say something He's got to say something funny. <laughs> Because that's what people will expect. Yeah, that I had to wreck my brains over that, believe me. Oh, it killed me. It killed me. It taught me like, <laughs> ooh, you should never do this. Like, this is a character you should never write again. Yeah, no, that's how I felt about Spider-Man. <laughs> like the Punisher? I can write the Punisher in my sleep. <laughs> but, but the Spider-Man? Like Killmonger? When I wrote that, man, that was like one of the easiest things I ever did. That was just like, I just put Tupac on and just started typing. But... When, uh, uh, yeah, the Spider-Man, they, oh, crushed me. Crushed me. All right. Final question. What is something that you have read recently where the writing really impressed you and why? I think the Joker screenplay. You know, when we're part of the Writers Guild, you, um, you get, uh, uh, the scripts that they send you. Hmm. And, um, uh, the Joker screenplay I recently read and, I I was just impressed by how it balanced kind of all these all these ideas, you know. And um, there's a, there's a lot of content in it that's not in the movie, um, and you can see that there was some evolution from page to screen. But I was just really impressed that it, it the script itself had that feel of the film, and I thought the film was a very visual piece in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You know, like Joker is a movie that you could just not hear and kind of get which i understand is a big criticism for people you know everyone isn't in love with the film but i i was impressed by it but i'm not trying to force it on people but uh i thought the script did a, a really masterful job of evoking the movie that i had seen and not because i had seen the movie and was watching it while i was reading it but just because the it, the script felt like it you know it felt like a 70s script in a way all right, so Brian, where can people find you online? Twitter is probably the best place to find me. Um, and it's just my name. It's at Brian Edward Hill. So it's at Brian Edward Hill, Brian with a Y. Um, Twitter is the social media uh, a platform of choice. Um, I am on Instagram uh, at Brian E. Hill, but that's not really about writing. That's more of like my photography and I put music snippets up there and, you know, that kind of thing. So. Yeah. That's what Instagram's for. That's what Instagram's for, right? Um, but yeah, yeah, you know, Twitter is where I do most of my social media, um, you know, destruction. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I like talking to people. I like, you know, answering questions and, and kind of going back and forth with people about what they love and all that. So feel free to holler at me. And what work of yours would you recommend that uh, listeners check out if they're not familiar with it, with your stuff? Uh, if you want to see like my TV writing, um, I would start with like Titans season one. Um, uh, I wrote a couple episodes uh, in that season, 
for comics. I really like the first trade of the Angel series I'm writing now. Cool. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This has been fantastic. And thank you out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you enjoyed the show, why not become a Patreon supporter? Patrons get exclusive access to episodes a week before they're published. So go to patreon.com slash writingandbreathing to make your pledge. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter. And that is also where you'll find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. See you next time.